A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you by Dispatch Coffee. Listeners are getting an amazing deal on their high-quality, responsibly traded, fairly priced coffee right now. Go to dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout for 50% off your first subscription. Again, that's dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout to get 50% off your first subscription. This episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks, the invoicing and accounting solution that's built for owners and their clients. FreshBooks users save up to 46 hours a month on stuff like building and following up on invoices. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash backbench. Enter backbench in the how did you hear about us section. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. The prime minister who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. I dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. Drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic. Uh, sorry. 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 And I'm really sorry. Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and three telecom companies in a trench coat. Today on the show... What the F is happening with the CRTC? And Quebec wants to change the constitution, and maybe they can? Joining me this week is Emily Nicola, columnist at Le Devoir and Montreal Gazette, who thinks everyone needs to chill about Quebec. Hey, Emily. Hi. We also have Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief at The Hub, who's lobbying for more babies in the world. Hi, Stuart. Hey. And Murad Hamadi makes his debut on the backbench. He's a reporter at The Logic who is awaiting an angry phone call from Big Telecom. Hi, Murad. Glad to be here. So let's get into it.
In case we all forgot, there was a reminder a few days ago that a handful of major telecom companies have a huge amount of control over this country. On May 27th, Canada's telecommunications regulator, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, or the CRTC, shocked us all by reversing their decision to drop wholesale internet rates from 2016. In fact, they actually increased the rates. These are the prices that smaller companies like Tech Savvy, Ebox, Distributal, and V Media pay to big tech companies like Bell and Rogers who own the infrastructure. In other words, the places you go for cheap internet won't be so cheap anymore. One tech savvy executive even described the CRTC decision as, quote, a tombstone on the grave of telecom competition in Canada. And that company has now filed an appeal to federal cabinet asking them to reverse last week's decision. In case you didn't know from your cell phone bills, according to a report out of Finland last year, Canada ranked among the most expensive in the world when it comes to telecommunication services offered by our telecom giants. The CRTC is now becoming known around the world as the government tries to expand its mandate from regulating just telecoms to all of social media through Bill C-10. Peter Menzies, a former CRTC commissioner who was the vice chair of telecom for four years, responded to the latest decision with just six words. In the end, Bell always wins. Murad, why do telecom companies keep winning like this in Canada? Why does the CRTC keep failing us? So the CRTC has a mandate. The CRTC's job is to consider competition, affordability, consumer interests, and innovation in its telecommunications decisions. If you look at network infrastructure, it's expensive. It costs money to put telephone poles, even when COVID conspiracy theorists aren't burning them down uh, every so often. And so typically when the CRTC makes a decision that consumer groups and smaller competitors view as uh, negative to their interests, they frame it in terms of investment. So, you know, we need to incentivize these big companies to spend money to build the stuff. And then maybe we'll let the smaller competitors get access to the stuff through things like wholesale rates. That's the rationale, right? The wholesale rates decision last week that actually sets prices. It says, you know, this is the maximum amount that Bell and Rogers can charge you. And the fight is, you know, in 2016, the CRTC set interim rates. In 2019, it set even lower rates. Then those never went into place because there was a whole bunch of legal fighting. And then last week, the CRTC said, those 2016 rates, they're great. Pretend 2019 never happened. You know, the, the joke is that Canada is, it's like three telecoms in a trench coat. The last two decisions actually add a fourth telecom to the trench coat. <laughs> The trench coat has opened and allowed a new person in. And I'd suggest it's Kojiko, which benefited from the rates decision and also benefited from the MVNO decision. So I, I don't know, that's progress, I guess. Stuart, maybe you can help us here. Big telecom giants argued that lower rates would harm network investments, including and especially in rural areas. Do you buy this? Is there merit to that logic? Yeah, uh, to a certain extent, we have to acknowledge that you know, we're not Belgium. We are a very, very large country. And there are some places that it's pretty hard to build infrastructure to. Um, so, you know, that is just the nature of Canada. Here's my here's me reading between the lines of this decision. 2019, there was the rate cut. 2020, there was sort of an intimation by the government last year that we're worried that infrastructure plans are under threat now because the same money isn't rolling in that it used to. You can almost imagine the like army of lobbyists who were telling the government this, like, 
you guys have some planned infrastructure, you want 5G infrastructure to happen, and you don't want Huawei to do it, we are pretty disinclined to have global competition in Canada on this kind of stuff. So what is the option beyond these large telcos? There is none, unless you want to nationalize it and have the government do it themselves. Um, so that is a lot of leverage for a few companies to have over the government. The government wants to paint themselves as the government of affordability. One of their big things during the 2019 election campaign was, we're going to cut wireless rates. And that was like a flagship announcement. So the idea that they would allow themselves to be indirectly tied to this decision to raise rates, it just shows you what was at stake here. And what was at stake was probably tens of billions of dollars worth of infrastructure that they really wanted to be built. Sorry, if I can just jump in there just to point out that there is no sector of the economy that is as fractious as this one. Like there is no, there's nobody in Canada who's as quick to pick up the phone to complain to you about your story as a as a big telecom PR person. And there is no one who is as quick to get on Twitter to <laughs> shout at you as a uh, as a challenger telecom PR person. Is that why they're winning? Because they just can't win against you, Morales? Honestly, like it, like I, I mean, I don't want to kind of both sides this, but like the the tenor of the conversation around telecom regulation in this country is. <laughs> Deep sigh. <laughs> that says it all. So one thing that's been brought up by both Murad and Stuart is that Big Telecom has a lot of power and a lot of influence. We know that the CRTC chair, Ian Scott, has had a long career as a telecom executive at TELUS and Rogers before he joined the CRTC. Big Telecom lobbies the federal government extensively. Emily, do we think that the CRTC even cares about consumers at this point? I don't know if it's about caring or not about consumers more than it is about being locked into an ideological framework that nobody wants to question. It is true that Canada is not Belgium and that we're a really, really large country. It is also true that the conversation tends to be centered on basically the bills that Canadians, mostly in urban centers, pay for their cell phones and not about those who just don't have service yet. There's been a conversation happening more and more when it comes to the rural-urban divide, especially with COVID-19 and how everybody moved their business online and how basically if you don't have high-speed internet or things like that, you're basically cut out of the economy in many ways. And so there was always an argument that the internet, it's a basic thing that makes the economy run. And it feels like that's not the way we're having a conversation yet about internet access. And I think that's what the, that's the ideological blind that I'm, that I'm referring to. I'm not as much as an expert ever as Murad will be, uh, is, but at the same time, my question is, why is it that considering access to this basic service to all Canadians is something that the government is more, not more interested in figuring it out? And why is it that it's just so ludicrous to think about nationalization if that's the only thing that's going to get us there. Is it the only thing that's going to get us there? I'm not hearing a lot of people thinking outside of the box when it comes to this conversation. Um, Murad, Emily and I both have a lot of why questions. Can you answer any of them? <laughs> One point I want to make. So Emily's talking about the, the idea of nationalization. So so in Saskatchewan, there's a, um, a provincial carrier, Saskdale. The Competition Bureau's analysis, which is disputed, I should say, by the big telecoms, but what isn't, found that in communities or sort of markets where there's a strong fourth carrier, prices do go down. So basically, competition works. 
who would have thought? And uh, in that case, the competition is coming in part from like a publicly owned carrier, right? On Friday, Innovation Minister of Champagne told the Toronto Star that he needs time to review the CRTC decision in detail and will decide, quote, what if any additional steps need to be taken? I'm curious, Stuart, do you think that he can do anything to fix the CRTC? Um, no, I, I don't want to show such little faith in our, our minister, but I mean, that's a big lift. And I actually don't even know if they are inclined to do so. Um, this to, This decision to me seems to be prioritizing this infrastructure, which is access, um, over affordability to the masses. So to me, that just seems like they just have those priorities. And then, you know, for the government, there are political considerations along those lines of affordability. But that has always looked to me like more PR than anything that was actually going to be policies. So, um, you know, in terms of a massive um, sort of shift of a huge institution in Canada. I don't expect to see that, especially not from this minister. You know, I I share that ambivalence (laughs) about (laughs) fixing the CRTC, especially because, as Murat has described, there's a chaotic, messy history that keeps on repeating itself over the many, many years. And then also, this is all happening as the government is trying to pass Bill C-10, which would create new regulations for everything from Netflix to Spotify like traditional broadcasters. So my understanding, and Murad, tell me if I'm really, really wrong here, is that C10 is a Netflix tax on steroids. True or false? (laughs) Broadly speaking, uh, C10 subjects uh, streaming platforms, and as we have learned over the last, whatever it's been, month, uh, an increasing number of other platforms, including social media platforms, to regulation around the amount of money that these platforms need to spend to produce CanCon, and also the uh, ways in which they have to make that CanCon prominent. If you think back historically, radio stations and TV stations in this country continue to have to play a certain amount of certified CanCon over their 24 hours. Uh, It extends those regulations essentially to the internet. Uh, I know a certain Jesse Brown had uh, some things to say about uh, the way that this was being implemented on a series of recent podcasts, and he has a point insofar as like the way that this used to work is, you know, uh, if you're a radio station, you use airwaves, a section of the radio dial. If you're a TV station, you're also using a certain amount of bandwidth. And the exchange you got was like, because that stuff is a public trust, the idea is the public owns the airwaves and therefore in exchange, you have to give a certain amount to make Canadian content. That doesn't exist with the internet. The internet is infinite, as I keep reminding my editors when they insist on word counts for my stories. <laughs> and therefore, uh, it's not entirely clear that this, this the same framework that works for terrestrial TV and radio makes sense for the internet. So this is the thing, right? That's the best explanation of C10 that I've ever heard. And I've been following all the press conferences. The heritage minister doesn't know how to convey that. His interviews have gone very poorly. And that's me being very diplomatic. And the bill is being reviewed by the Heritage Committee. And everyone is has a lot of feelings and thoughts about it. And it could get pushed through in the next couple of weeks before Parliament rises. Emily, is this just another instance of big tech companies getting their way? Are we just following the same playbook? I'd say it's the other way around, and this is why uh, there's a lot of pushback against it. It's really interesting for me following this conversation on C10 coming from Quebec, because I feel like there's a drastically different editorializing around the bill. And I think that comes from a place of 
protecting cultural diversity on this planet. <laughs> and uh, when you think of it that way, then the means that are used to circulate culture are kind of immaterial, whether or not they're publicly or privately owned. The fear that people have, and I think they are heightened if you're a linguistic minority, basically as we move into a more and more globalized cultural sphere, by globalized, I mean Americanized, then everybody that's not an American uh, working in New York and Hollywood doesn't get you know, represented because it's just not a level field. Of course, francophones would be more sensitive to that issue. For example, it's not just Canadian content. There is already a rule in place that if you're on a francophone radio, there's a quota of francophone content that you need to play. So there needs to be a minimum of French uh, music that needs to be on the air all the time. And that has played a huge role in making the Quebec uh, arts and culture scene what it is. And people are jealous of that, but they don't want to have the means <laughs> that made that possible in a way, I feel. And so I feel like in general, if you want culture to exist, you cannot have a bulldozer giant uh, coming over and making the rules of the market. And I think that's more like the cultural, I guess, debate that's behind it. Uh, because when you have that as a starting point, then you realize that there is no su there is no free such thing as like the internet being a, this neutral free zone as it is. My concern with this bill is more that I haven't seen the CRTC being very effective actually in a whole lot of issues. For example, I grew up in Quebec City where we have one of the most infamous radios in Canada, uh, Radio X, not to name it, who has been um, the subject of probably the most <laughs> complaint to the CRTC of all uh, private radio stations in Canada. It's been known uh, in the last year to peddle conspiracy theories against COVID-19. And there's been a huge crisis there. And it was some years ago that CRTC was considering not renewing its license because it's basically it's contributing to hate speech and whatnot. That license was re renewed anyway, because at the end of the day, we created a CRTC that is so vested in protecting basically private interests and a, a company's interests that it's not actually doing anything. Yeah, I think you've gotten to the heart of the issue here, right? Like, even if we decide Bill C-10 is a good idea, how is it even possible for the CRTC to oversee literally the entire internet and everything on it? Murad, you're in Ottawa. You're watching this closely. There's only a couple of weeks left before Parliament rises. Um, I read an ana analogy somewhere that compared putting the CRTC in charge of the entire internet was like putting a logging company in charge of a rainforest. So I've got a twofold question for you, and you can you have the last word on it. Um, do you think that analogy is accurate? And how likely do you think we'll see Bill C-10 pass and the CRTC get even more powers in a few weeks? I think the analogy might be accurate if the CRTC is also like three people with very blunt axes. <laughs> in a trench coat. In a trench coat. And as for uh, Bill C-10 passing, I think it is unlikely for the simple reason that so the, the bill still has to get through clause by clause. Uh, it still has to go through third reading. It still has to go through the Senate before royal assent. To do all of those things in a minority parliament, the government needs at least one other party to back them. The bloc has suggested they might. Um, but it's going to take a significant amount of political capital for them to push this through. Uh, and they've got other stuff that they need to get doing. Like there's a whole privacy bill 
that industry has been waiting for for a couple of years that a whole bunch of other people unrelated to this set of people hate. Like <laughs> we haven't, the public hasn't discussed any of that. So getting C10 through requires a lot of political capital. And it's as the fight gets nastier and nastier, I don't know, that seems like a lot of political capital to spend in the next three weeks when they still have a budget bill to pass. This episode is brought to you by Dispatch Coffee. We're all spending more time at home, so there's never been a better time to invest in your home coffee setup. Dispatch is your one-stop shop for high-quality beans directly delivered from their roastery to your doorstep. Coffee brewing gear and free brewing tips and recipes from their team of expert baristas access all of this at a fair price. One of their offerings is a coffee called La Coipa from Peru. This is made by three women farmers specifically for Dispatch, and they describe it like this. Vibrant, juicy, tropically fruited coffee with remarkable structure and clarity. In this cup, we taste golden raisin, cantaloupe, and caramel. Listeners are getting an amazing deal right now. Go to dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANDLELAND50 at checkout for 50% off your first subscription. Again, that's dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout to get 50% off your first subscription. I have a point of order about babies. What's your point of order, Stuart? Well, nobody is having them anymore. This is a, something that's happened during the pandemic, but is also a 30-year trend. I don't know if you guys remember about a year ago at the beginning when we were all locked down and people were saying... Just wait, everyone's going to be doing it, and we're going to have a lot of babies coming. But actually, the opposite happened. Um, people have not. There was an interesting tidbit in a National Post piece that the people who make pregnancy tests have found in their polling that um, more people are now buying them because they don't want to get pregnant and they want to check rather than the other way around, which is classically how it goes. This is actually a global problem, too. Um, there was a good piece in The Globe on the weekend that said the projection for China, by the year 2100, China is going to go from 1.4 billion people to 730 million people. They're going to lose people. So I think it actually is a very serious policy question because in polling, we find that people aren't actually having the amount of kids that they want to have. So I think that's kind of a tragedy, actually. Like if that's something the government can help people with, they should do it. And I would just to leave you with something, my diagnosis here is that maybe careers have become too much of our identity. I know for me, that's how I thought in my 20s. It was all about like, how can I be really good in my career? I wasn't thinking about babies and then babies start happening in your 30s. And then you start to realize once you have a baby that maybe the career isn't that big of a deal. That's a cultural issue. And housing affordability. If nobody can buy, afford to buy a house in their 20s, people are probably less inclined to start families earlier. And that to me, as much as all the problems with housing affordability, you know, there's dozens of them. Um, that's just one more symptom and maybe something we could look at. So I want to I want to dismiss this point of order because that's what we're meant to be doing in this segment. <laughs> but this is actually a really interesting comment on sociology. I have a point of order as well. What's your point of order, Emily? It's, I guess, still about family in a way. Um, we all remember that Joyce Shaquan became unwillingly, definitely 
and ICON in some other way to talk about uh, discrimination in healthcare against Indigenous people as she passed away in September. And now, actually, Quebec is having this coroner inquest into her death, trying to figure out what happened. And there's been more than 40 testimonials in the last couple of days of hearing from everybody what, what has been going on. And I just think it's important to bring it up because what we're seeing in this inquest is just people after people after people after people denying that racism played any role in her in her death. So, Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, I guess my point of order is uh, what the fuck Canada? Can we stop denying systemic racism, please? Again, very important <laughs> criticism, just not a real point of order for the backbench. Madam Speaker, I'm actually rising sort of virtually, although I'm going to stay sitting down uh, on a point of personal privilege. What is your point of personal privilege, Murad? The government of Canada's access to information system gives me anxiety. <laughs> I'd like the uh, specifically the Liberal cabinet to stop pretending they give a fuck about the uh, access to information system. It's broken. A former uh, Canada Land host, Justin Ling uh, of Oppo, has been making this point for several years more articulately than me. But Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised that ministers' offices would be atypical. They're not. Every request that anyone has submitted over the last year has been delayed without going through official procedure on the basis of the pandemic. That excuse is being used to delay files that had been submitted literally years before the pandemic started. <laughs> this is not a priority for ministers. It's not a priority for the department heads. It's not the fault of ATIP officers who are trying to do their jobs, but there are fewer and fewer ATIP officers and more and more files. The reason I'm telling you all of this, even though access to information puts everyone to sleep, is that... There is currently a review ongoing, and the federal government is accepting submissions from regular people as well as stakeholders on the system and what they can do to improve it. And I will remind everyone that a few months ago, Minister Patty Haidu, the health minister, rose in the House of Commons and said, no Canadian has ever told me that they want us to, uh, to like, that access to information is a priority. I'd like you all to prove them wrong. I don't usually ask for people to tell the government things. I like to respect <laughs> that line between journalist and stakeholder. But in this case, I'm shamelessly going to say, send a submission to the federal government and say, the access to information system is broken and here's how we should fix it. Murad, I've got two questions for you. Yes. Do you want to give the people an email to send their, their gripes to and their requests to? And also, please tell me how the ATIP system has personally attacked you. What is the longest you've been waiting? The longest I believe I've ever gotten is a 540-day extension. So they're required to give you a response in 30 days. They decided 30 days was not enough. A year was not enough. A year and a half. A year and a half. 
the odds that I will remember what I wanted or that the information will still be relevant in a year and a half are close to zero. But you know what? They're going to come back to me in, in like a month or so and ask me if I want to continue with this uh, request because it's so it's been so long. And I'm going to say yes on principle. That was the most entertaining personal rant, but also not a point of order. <laughs> Okay, so uh, normally the backbench's point of order makes fun of a parliamentary procedure during which members bring up gripes and concerns in the House of Commons, or in our case, on our Zoom video call. I'm going to break protocol, as Madam Speaker, air quotes, to, to bring up a serious one. The biggest story in Canada right now is the discovery of the remains of 215 children, some as young as three years old, at the former Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia. We know that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has estimated that roughly 6,000 kids have died in these schools. There is a huge and very necessary conversation to be had about the Canadian political will or lack thereof to do justice by Indigenous communities for past and present failures. We saw just in the last few days that it took Canadian elected officials two whole days to lower all flags to half-mast, the bare minimum response. I really hope to have a proper conversation about this on the backbench someday, but we are still learning and mourning. I'm taking my lead from Indigenous journalists who asked us as an industry to pause and have this conversation properly and constructively. We at the backbench encourage all of you to follow those journalists, to keep reading and informing yourself, as we do the same. This episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks, the invoicing and accounting solution that's built for owners and their clients. If you're a freelancer or small business owner, you know exactly how much time admin tasks take. Invoicing is literally my least favorite task of the day. I have to remember to file it to start and then follow up to make sure I've been paid and then organize all my invoices somewhere for tax time. FreshBooks can save you from all of these headaches. Users save up to 46 hours a month on stuff like building and following up on invoices. They also get paid 18 days faster on average and increase their return on investment by 11 times. With an intuitive dashboard that's easy to navigate, over 3,000 business owners have rated it an average of 4.5 out of 5 stars on GetApp. Switch to FreshBooks today and join over 24 million people who have used it and loved it. It's super easy to get up and running, and with award-winning support, you're never alone. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash backbench, enter backbench in the how did you hear about us section. Okay, so Quebec wants to change the constitution. And what's extremely, extremely wild to me is that no Canadian politician is seriously stopping them from making this very quick edit that could have huge implications for all of us. Not even Justin Trudeau, or Aaron O'Toole, or Jagmeet Singh. Last week, the Bloc Québécois tried to pass a motion, Bill 96, that backed Quebec Premier François Legault's motion to amend the Constitution unilaterally to recognize Quebec as a nation and declare French as that nation's official and common language. According to this bill, this describes the fundamental characteristics of Quebec. That's a quote. The motion very nearly got unanimous consensus on Parliament Hill, and they need a unanimous vote to get the bill tabled and presented formally for discussion. The bill relies on the use of the notwithstanding clause, which overrides rights in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, to impose things like stricter language restrictions on businesses and revoke the bilingual status of cities 
where less than half the population is English. The only dissenting voice? Independent MP Jody Wilson-Raybould, who actually got up to say, hey, maybe we should think about this? So, Emily, my question for you. Can Quebec actually change the Constitution, and how the heck are they getting away with this? Can Quebec change the Constitution is a question that legal scholars that are much more knowledgeable than I am about constitutional law have been debating for the last, ever since this bill was tabled. So it's really not clear because there are basically different process to change the constitution depending on what is it that you want to change. Basically, there are provincial constitutions, many of them are unwritten, that provinces can change themselves. Uh, There are aspects of the constitution that can be changed by approval of the House of Commons. And basically, when it comes to, uh, because those the, the change that wants to be done is uh, French being the official language and Quebec being a nation, uh, it's only relating to Quebec. Um, so basically, that's what people are arguing over, whether it's Quebec can do it on its own or whether this is something that has to go through the House of Commons. I'm not seeing any legal scholars saying that this is the kind of change that would need approval of the provinces. And so this is either it needs the parliament or Quebec can do it on its own kind of situation. So, but the question is, I think, why? And I think it's that's the better question. You preface what you were saying by saying that this would lead to radical change. And that's, I think, why this is not a debate, is that this actually does not lead to much change in the sense that uh, Quebec has already been acknowledged as a nation by the federal government years ago, and uh, French is already the official language of Quebec. So I'm not seeing the concrete change that this would do. Some legal scholars are saying that maybe the way in which French is affirmed as an official language could change the way in which the National Assembly is obligated to provide an English translation uh, for what happens in Parliament. So there's just basically debate to be had about that. But other than that, this is putting into the Constitution things that are already facts. I want to push back a little bit on your comments, because even though it might have minimal impact on Quebecers themselves, it will put additional language regulations on small businesses. It will partially revoke the bilingual status of cities. Do you think that's not going to have a huge impact? So when I said that, I was talking about amending the Constitution. It's only doing two things. Those are very abstract, symbolic things. The bill itself might have impact, absolutely. And I think that we need to have those conversations. But how that, those conversations have nothing to do with the debates at the House of Commons. And they have nothing to do with what people have been debating in media, in the Globe and Mail, or in Alberta. I think most of the time, those those arguments are about comparing apple and oranges. For example, Alberta would want to ha- have something to do with equalization payment, which is something that has a huge impact on federal, uh, federalism and the federation, which would be something that necessarily would demand the approval of majority of provinces who wanted to change that. So once again, that's apple and oranges, but people have been comparing apple and oranges all week. There's also the fact that it's really unclear why you want to change the constitution in the first place if you haven't signed it, <laughs> which is the case uh, in Quebec. But mostly what it is, I think it's more like this political thing that you throw out there because it makes the CAC government looks ambitious in terms of its nationalism. And it creates a very abstract debate while people have been, you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic, there's this economic crisis and we're arguing about super abstract stuff that doesn't have any impact on any per- people's life, but that makes somehow the CAC government look strong in Quebec. One of the things that 
in this bill I find problematic is that they want to limit the number of people who can access English uh, language uh, CEGEPs in Quebec. And so basically the priority is given to people who've been in the English system in high school and only a number, a limited number basically of, of francophones will be able to access CEGEPs. And that makes it basically even more desirable in a way because you make it a program that's uh, exclusive. And we all know that there are issues of or overlap of class in bilingualism in Quebec. So uh, people who are more educated tend to be more bilingual, which leads to higher paying jobs and whatnot. And so I fear that this bill might actually make this access more difficult, while really the issue is trying to make people want to learn French and English. And I think the one constitutional thing that Quebec is doing that is, once again, unrelated to amending the Constitution, that I think is problematic, is the use of the notwithstanding clause again, just like they did with Bill 21, which is just saying, we don't know if this bill is affecting basically human rights, but we're going to use the clause from the get-go so that, so that there's not any legal challenge that can be done based on that, so we don't actually find out whether or not this is uh, something that has a disproportionate in, impact in terms of human rights. And so that I told, also, I think it's a it's a bad habit for any province to take. Uh, but um, if any other province were jealous of Quebec doing that, it could actually do that as well and uh, stop, start using the notwithstanding clause all the time for its own provincial bill as well. It's Something that's not just Quebec-specific. It's a flaw that's in the Constitution that any go- any conservative government can use as well. <laughs> so, okay, so let's talk about the other provinces. Uh, Stuart, do you think this won't matter outside Quebec, or, or do you think it's going to have a huge impact? Because I've seen it argued both ways. Yeah, it's an interesting one, because I wouldn't say that Alberta was mad about this. I, when I saw Jason Kenney's comments on this, he seemed excited that Quebec was doing this. And, you know, this just, he's just looking for um, different tools to use to get things for Alberta. And, you know, the the referendum that Kenny wants to do on equalization is an interesting one because that is actually a plan that he got from Ted Morton, who's an Albertan um, U of C professor, basically using Quebec's uh, method of doing a referendum to then force a negotiation on some issue. It's it's a little bit quixotic, like it's not necessarily um, going to happen that way. But what you do do in this situation is you create a lot of PR and you create a lot of pressure on the federal government. So that's one way that Alberta has used Quebec's methods. So, you know, we'll see. I can't think of a lot of ways that this works for Alberta, though. Like Emily's right. Equalization does not fall under this because it affects every, by its very nature, it affects every province. So I think the the part of this that is most interesting to me is there was some polling in the National Post that, I don't know if it shocked me, but I found it interesting. On the right to unilaterally amend the Constitution, 62% of Quebecers agree that they should have the right to do that. 64% of the rest of Canada disagrees. To recognize Quebec as a nation, 67% of Quebecers agree 15% of the rest of Canada agrees that Quebec should do that. And those numbers, it is reminiscent of Bill 21, which was the uh, the bill banning religious symbols in the workplace for pub- public servants in Quebec. You know, we were coming up on an election. There was political parties who seemed to have very little courage in the face of this bill um, because they wanted to win seats in Quebec. And Paul Wells and McLean's actually reminded me of something that I'd forgotten, which is that 
Justin Trudeau was actually probably the most strident voice against Bill 21 from the federal leaders. Uh, he said he would challenge it in court. We haven't seen that yet, but he did say it during an election campaign, and they actually made a bit of fuss about it. Um, the Liberal Party did. So it is interesting now that there is nothing really being said about this. And the one voice against it is Jody Wilson-Raybould, who, as an independent in BC, she has no political interests in Quebec. You know, we're looking at um, 78 seats in a province where the seats tend to change hands a lot. That's one thing that maybe Alberta can learn from. If you only ever vote for one party, then nobody really cares about appealing to you. Uh, in Quebec, where we see swings all the time, and for example, the NDP can do a massive surge in the province out of nowhere, uh, and then the bloc can come out of nowhere in 2015, these things happen, right? So people are going to vie for your political leanings in that case, and I think that's probably what's happening here. Uh, uh, a lot of these people are just hoping this goes away. And I think, actually, if I'm Justin Trudeau, what I'm hoping is that this is mostly symbolic. Nothing really happens. Um, I get to maybe win, you know, half a dozen to a dozen seats, depending on what happens. Uh, and, and then there's actually no real consequences from this. Murad. Both Stuart and Emily have touched on the fact that, you know, a lot of this does have to do with how important Quebec votes are for any politician it seems, we might be heading to a potential fall election. Is Quebec really that important? And is that why they're getting away with this? Yeah, following following these two is uh, quite an ask. Um, <laughs> I mean, to Stuart's point about Bill 21, Trudeau was sort of the mightiest mouse on that debate. You know, he, uh, he said that the position that he's laid out is that the federal government would be open to joining a court challenge, but there has to be a court challenge that, that they would seek intervene a status in, as I understand it. So that has yet to sort of materialize. There has been no action on this front. You're talking about Bill 21, right? Correct. Yes. Um, uh, uh, Bill 21. So just to the point of the, the importance of Quebec sort of electorally. Certainly there's an election coming up. Uh, and if we had a, I think if we had a sort of Wexit or Maverick party in the House, we'd get a sense of whether, uh, you know, whether this this thing went through the other day just out, out of sort of apathy and like there's a hundred votes going on uh, or, or really a, a sort of catering to Quebec because there isn't a party that doesn't need seats in Quebec. So, I cannot imagine that journalists are going to stop asking these questions at press conferences, and I cannot imagine that party leaders are going to be running up to microphones around the country uh, trying to, to sort of go after uh, the CAC on this issue because what's what's the gain? What's the gain there? Like soft soft agreement with this uh, idea, uh, you know, is is not going to cost them seats. Emily, where do we think this is going? Like, what's going to happen in the next few days or weeks in, in this discussion? Um, and and what should Canadians across the country be looking out for? It's really interesting that a lot of people have a reaction to this as. Uh, you know, Quebec trying to be special and different, while really it's the first time in a generation that Quebecers show an interest in the Canadian Constitution. As I was saying, it, like Quebec hasn't signed it. So actually, I feel like Quebec wanting to amend the Canadian Constitution or the CAC wanting to amend Canadian's Constitution by the heart of it is by default a very federalist stand to stand to take in a way. Like it's about trying to make Canada work with a Quebec that is like having French as an official language. Uh, the opposite of that would be 
actually, um, yeah, independence and whatnot. Uh, I feel like if you're a sovereigntist, you're not interested in amending the Canadian constitution. You just want out. And so the reaction, the fact that the reaction to this stance is, this is Quebec not trying to be part of the nation, uh, for me is really interesting. And it shows as well how little or how much understanding there is for Canada being a country while having cultural diversity within it. And I know that there's a lot of, it can be a double-edged sword, uh, the fact that Quebec has some recognition that others don't. Uh, but at the same time, uh, and I think that's partly why Jody Wilson-Raybould is re reacting that way. And I think she's right and she's correct in that. And there has been uh, many others before her taking similar stances. And I agree with the stances that are basically saying we cannot have a conversation about recognizing certain rights for French Canadians if we're not also having conversations about Indigenous rights. And I feel like that's actually a correct stand. Um, however, I do feel that when uh, people are taking, um, basically, are having opinions that are, why is it that people can't just assimilate and we can't all be the same? If that stance is directed against French Canadians, that stance can be directed against any other minority in this country in a heartbeat. You put me in, like, deep thought. No, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while. Yeah, I think one thing... Um that's kind of gone under the radar here is the potential for backlash for Aaron O'Toole. Um, you know, this is, it is hard to be a conservative leader in this country. Um, the natural jurisdiction is in the prairies and they're fine there, but we've clearly seen that's not enough. Um, and Aaron O'Toole, he has appeared to want to appeal to, to Quebec in a way that his predecessor didn't. Um, they've talked a lot about those ridings around the GTA as places they need to win, but that's likely not enough. And anyways, you can't just have one path to victory. Um, you really have to have a plan B. And then also, I mean, people in Quebec, the chances of Aaron O'Toole really appealing to them are, you know, let's put it at 30% very generously. Um, so it, it's a tough it's a tough place for him to be and how he plays this, I think, is one of the many sort of early challenges he's had to face. There was a really powerful conversation about Quebec that actually went somewhere that I didn't see going. So thanks for that. But I do have a silly question to end this conversation. I'm going to start with Murad. Who has more power in Canada, Big Telecom or Quebec? How big are we making this trench coat? I have some concerns. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to adjourn. <laughs> That's The Backbench, episode three. We'll be back in two weeks. You can write us at backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter, BackbenchCast. If you like what you hear, please follow, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Rating us would be really awesome too. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Where can people find you, Stuart? Uh, check out thehub.ca. Emily? Twitter, uh, Le Devoir, Montreal Gazette. And Murad? <laughs> Um, I'm at thelogic.co and also on Twitter too much. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Kappa Kione. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks so much for listening. Speak.